0: Hey, Kevin here. We are currently hard at work here at Philly Who, gathering, telling, and getting ready to share even more new Philly stories this fall. And in the meantime, we are revisiting some of our favorite Philly stories from the first three years of this podcast. So today we are revisiting the story of Rakia Reynolds, who is an absolute public relations pro who has helped Serena Williams and other celebrities share their stories across the world. And today we revisit her story as shared with me and with you in fall 2019. So please enjoy the story of Rakia Reynolds.
1: Listen, when I tell you it was tough times, like to start a company in the recession was unheard of. Like people were like, are you on something? Like, why would you do
0: that? You're listening to Philly Who the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm sitting down with Rikia Reynolds, founder and owner of Sky Blue Media. Sky Blue is a multimedia public relations company that has worked for high-profile clients such as Serena Williams, Ashley Graham, and M. Night Shyamalan. But for a long time, it wasn't clear that Rikia was on the path to becoming one of the most sought-after PR personalities in the country. She spent years trying out different professions, and as they one by one didn't pan out, she reflected on her childhood. And there, she found her calling. The story of how Rakia Reynolds powered through a streak of bad luck, a layoff, and a recession is now on Philly Who. Stay tuned. Just a heads up, there is cursing in this episode. So Rakia Reynolds' company, Sky Blue Media, is currently in its 10th year. If you do the math, that means she started it during one of the country's worst recessions in modern history. America was seeing millions of job losses. It was not the time to start a company. But Rakia went for it. A decade later, she talks about this thing called the art of lack.
1: And I think there's something so powerful in the art of lack in
0: turning off... In Rekia's world, that means tuning out all the outside influences. Ignore what everyone else is doing. Isolate yourself a little and focus. It's like wearing blinders. A lot of artists and creatives try to work this way. When you lack all those outside factors, you're almost forced to be creative. But Rakia learned about the art of lack at a very young age. Every time she got suspended in school, she spent a lot of time alone in front of the principal's office, and that's where the creativity started to grow.
1: I was a hyper kid, and you know, teachers would throw around, like, "We think she might be, you know, ADD." And my dad. You know, being who he was, he was very like everything had to be organic and homeopathic. And he was shopping at Whole Foods when it was called Fresh Fields. Wow. And so he was always giving me like burdock root and making things to calm me down. He would give me melatonin and things like that. So because teachers would always say, you know, Rakia's interrupting classrooms, you know, I was physically pushed out of my classrooms as a kid. And I remember this one humiliating story of, I did something, I can't remember exactly what it was that I did, but my teacher said, you don't belong in this classroom. And she said, now you have to push your desk out and you can learn independently at the principal's office. And I might've been in either third or fourth grade at that time. And I just remember what it felt like to push my desk out of the room and have to walk past all of these classrooms. And then the sixth grader saw me, the seventh grader saw me and the eighth grader saw me and they're like, oh, she must be in trouble it was called like in-school suspension. And so having to sit and do like independent study made me creative, like, you know, sitting by yourself sort of like in this solitary confinement in school, just, you know, I had to draw things and I had to write things. And, you know, I had to be faced with this humiliation of like, if you don't sit in this box and if you don't learn the way the other kids learn, if you don't speak when spoken to, if you don't follow this regimen or if you don't follow these rules, Your punishment is
0: humiliation. So that's how I grew up. When this was going down, how did you feel?
1: I mean, as a kid, you're embarrassed, and I think it helps. You know, PSA for parents: like, pay attention to your kids and their feelings. And I think my parents were like, "Well, you should have paid attention, or you shouldn't have been jumping out of your seat." So I think it caused a little rebellion in me, and I was like, "Well, you know, if my parents aren't going to stick up for me because they believe the teacher, and most parents, they're going to believe the teacher."
0: Now, at this point, is there any indication that you're going to get into visual stuff? Because you said mom and dad said, be a doctor, be a lawyer. Those are like words and stuff like that. When did you start thinking that you might work in things that are sort of visual and more experiential?
1: I did use visual techniques to tell stories instead of writing book reports. So that actually happened in sixth grade when we had to write this big book report about the Boston Tea Party. And for me, it was like, do I really have to sit there and write all of this down when I can't sit still enough, honestly, to write this whole book report? But what I can do is take this video recorder that my dad got for Christmas, and I could invite my friends over and shoot it like I'm shooting a commercial. And so I didn't know what I was doing as a kid. I didn't know as a kid that I was a television producer. So then I did that for one book report. My teacher, Miss Fernicola, in the sixth grade, she loved that. And she said- Why don't you do all of your book reports like this?
0: And so you wound up going to Temple University. I did. What brought you to Temple?
1: You know, my parents told me I had to be a doctor or a lawyer and they had a good medical program. So I I thought maybe I could major in chemistry and be a dentist. And their health sciences campus was like, oh, okay, maybe I'll graduate And then I'll go to the health science campus. I was like, you know what? I I like teeth. Maybe that's a thought. A recruiter in my high school came in and they said they had a good dental program. So I went to Temple to be a dentist. To be a a dentist. (laughs) And my teeth are still crooked now. (laughs) You know, I got into freshman year and I'm like, this chemistry life is not me. Can't get like a C plus. You know, or a B minus in chemistry and really think that somebody's gonna take me seriously when it's time to apply to medical school, I would create a ton of things, you know, like cut-up t-shirts or like cut-up tank tops. And my outfits in college were pretty outrageous. I mean, very outrageous to the point where, you know, people would look at me funny. Or even if a boy that I kind of liked, I remember this boy telling me in college, like, Rakia, I think you're real cute, but your outfits are real weird. (laughs) And so my roommate at the time, oh my gosh, Melanie, shout out to Melanie. Melanie is like, you don't look like anyone else we know. I had like spiked hair. Half of my hair was purple. I had a spot in the back that was orange. I wore these collars. I wore these long skirts that were sheer. And so she was like, and you want to be a dentist? Why do you (laughs) want to be a dentist? And I was like, I don't know. My parents told me. And she was like, and you're really going to listen to your parents? Like, why aren't you studying like liberal arts or why aren't you studying communications or why aren't you studying like filmmaking? I was like, I don't know, because my parents told me I couldn't. I changed my major to international business and marketing. And in the business school, they required you to dress a certain way. So I got accustomed to that dress code of like being super simple or then wearing the jeans, you know, and the Timberlake. Yeah.
0: yeah. Sort of, you know, peer pressure, really, you dial it back a little bit Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and be a little bit more conformist. Mm -hmm. When you graduate college, what's your next move? Do you do something along that lines? That's sort of more what you should do?
1: No, I was still playing it safe. I got a job offer from Temple University to work in higher education because when I was at Temple, I was the president of the Community Service Association. I almost made homecoming queen. I just started to do all the things that some people do in college. So I became like a pretty active student and and a champion for Temple University. So I was offered this position that you needed your master's degree for. And I was able to work in higher education. And then I actually became an adjunct professor at Temple in the film school, again, because the dean of the school said, hey, you know, we like how you tell stories. We see that, you know, you're working with a population of students. I did it for about five years working at Temple. And then I sort of plateaued after that, you know, working with students. And while I was there, I I started studying psychology because I was working with students and I was looking at behavior. So behavior became something that I got quite intrigued by in working with people. Why do they move the way that they do? Why do they play with their pens when they're talking to people? Why do people turn their backs on people when they're talking? So I started paying attention to behaviors probably two years into working at Temple University in higher education and then started to pursue a master's degree in counseling psychology. And then- pursued this degree in counseling psychology, had a little bit of a run in with a student that, you know, I had these open office hours and I made a huge mistake. The first thing in psychology that they tell you in human behavior is you pay attention to cues and you pay attention to people. And someone said, you know, hey, Rakia, I think you need to check on blank. He's been acting a little funny. So I went up to this student's room and I went to talk to him and he was performing a little differently and communicating a little differently than he normally would. I did all of the right things. I kept the door open. We talked and I said, OK, I'm going to go back down to my office because I had these open office hours from 10 to 4. Go back down to my office and document this and maybe call someone that can help him out maybe about an hour later, the same student came down and said, hey, I want to finish our conversation. Can we, you know, finish talking? And I said, great, let me go grab some water and grab some tea or something like that. And I'll be right back. And when I turned my back for less than 10 seconds and he closed the door and it was like, Rakia, you really messed up. He closed the door and basically had me in this room with him. And my assistant at the time, you know, knocked on the door because the door was locked. So when he closed the door, he locked the door. And so Annette, this woman was my assistant at the time, and she knew I never locked my door. And she said, "Ricky, is everything okay? Because you closed the door and you locked it. And he looked at me and I was like, maybe this is my cue not to say anything. Like I had never been in a situation like this. And I think it was just so heavy at that point. I had, you know, listened to all of these people. I was doing, you know, this intake with students and things. And when he locked the door, it caused me to. Get into a little bit of a panic. Like, what is the rest of the day going to look like? And it ended well. You know, there were all of these procedures that we had to follow. Since my door was locked, my assistant, you know, called the police. He wasn't violent or anything, but it was the moment that the door was locked and I was faced with this decision of like, you did something wrong. Maybe this isn't for you. I've turned my back on him. I turned my back on him just uh, less than 10 seconds turning my back on him. And that, Just, you know, for me, that was an awakening moment for me saying i know talking to my parents about it. They're like, are you going to be able to be the type of individual that has these kinds of encounters and you would have to take this home every day? And I think when the student closed the door, it caused this awakening and having to go through this journey with him throughout the day and all of the behavior that I got to experience with him in these spaces said, maybe it's time for you to think about something else and be who you were, I guess, destined to be, uh, you know, and, and in my eyes at that time, it was like, not a psychologist, yeah. but maybe like there was some psychology in the work that I was doing, but maybe it was time for me to move on and be a, a true creative.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, in that moment when you, you're five years outside of school, going down this path, you realize in, in a moment that it's not for you mm-hmm. and that it's not your destiny. What are the thoughts? Do you know what your destiny actually is?
1: What I was doing was taking these little fragments and these little ideas, and it was formulating this perfect story or blueprint of like, here's who you are, Rakia. It was like the universe. Like, you've done these things. You've like interrupted classrooms and you're a disruptor. You do things a little differently. Maybe you should look at things this way. Counseling psychology was a way for you to understand consumer behavior and why people do the things that they do. Maybe you should do things that way. I wasn't able to figure it out. I think maybe it was the universe. Maybe it was God. Maybe it was something cosmic that said, here's the next step for you. And I got an offer from the folks at MTV Networks shortly after that. And it was like a moment of faith of like, you can take this job and, you know, work, you know, with MTV Networks and this production company Or you can stay here working in higher education at Temple University and everything is there for you. They were paying for room and board. They were paying for tuition. My husband, he's my husband now. We weren't married at the time. He was going to Temple University for his master's degree. We had this perfect setup. It was like, take this perfect setup or you jump off of a cliff and you Uh, don't know if you're going to be in water or rocks and I decided to to jump off the cliff and work with this production company called Sri and Company, and they were producing content for MTV Networks.
0: It's quite this shift of gears to go from higher education and psychology to be like, oh, I got a job at MTV. Like fake it till you
1: make it. I put my name in some like guidebook that they had at um, the film office like had. at the film office here in Philadelphia. And they had a booklet that they would publish, you know, a couple times a year of these people that had jobs. And I put my name down as a producer. I was like, listen, I know I can produce something. I produce events. I produce ideas. And I put my name down as a producer. And I got a call from someone at Lucky Magazine. I think this is how it happened. I got a call from someone at Lucky Magazine and they said, have you ever produced a fashion editorial? I was like, oh, 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 shit, maybe I haven't produced a fashion editor, but I told them I was like, listen, I've produced things in the past. Take a bet on me like you won't lose if you work with me. So I would got this sort of like entry. And this is still while I was at Temple University. I was producing like small fashion editorials for Lucky Magazine. And then I was building up my resume in the film office's film book and a production came to town in Philadelphia. They were producing this pilot. The writers of My Soul Called Life and Degrassi High, they wanted to do another sort of teen scripted drama series. And they were looking for local producers who knew their way around the city and knew how to, you know, work with catering companies. It was really like a production assistant role. And they were like, hey, we're looking for a production assistant because we're going to need people to order food and like help take care of the crew and all of that. And they were like, we don't have a budget. We need you to work for free for about two weeks. and." If you take this job, the series may get picked up with MTV Networks. It may get picked up. It wasn't even a sure thing. I can take this and run with it, or I can stay and pursue, you know, my master's degree given everything that had gone on with the counseling psychology and all of that. And I have this family and, you know, and I can be safe or I can like, you know, just go ahead and jump off a cliff. And I jumped off a cliff. You jumped
0: off the cliff. And how did the lending go?
1: Oh, it was tough. It was hard because, you know, like my husband was in grad school. You know, we had no money at all. I mean, like for those people that are in grad school, you know what your like stipends are and like what you're getting. And it's not a ton of money. And he was like, you know what, Rakia, if this is what you want to do. And if you believe in it, like if you believe that this is going to result in something so much bigger than what it is right now, then why don't you go ahead and do it? And I did get a job out of that, like working for, you know, for free. It did result in the show was actually picked up. So I was able to get a six month job with them producing this show. Crazy hours, working 12 hours a day, working with a crew of 60 people in media, Pennsylvania wow. on the Blue Route working on this show that I believed in. And that was like my first big break, yeah. you know, working in television and, and working in, you know, working in scripted drama. I was like, well, I'm leaving grad school. You can stay. <laughs> he finished his graduate. <laughs> yeah. One of, one of us will win. And he finished his master's degree and I went on to work in television.
0: Wow. And so how long did you work in television?
1: I worked with that production company for about a year. And then I started working in for another production company here called Banyan Productions. And they produced like reality, real television for TLC and Discovery Health. And I went on to do that for the next two years.
0: Gotcha. And did you feel at that point that you were finally on the right track for your destiny?
1: I did. That's when I started to get like an inkling of like, hey, Rakia, this is where you belong. Because I worked in these very creative spaces and I felt like, I was my most creative self at that time. I started to do a lot of writing and reflecting. And I was like, wow, this is, this is life. Like, this is what life should be like. You know, you get up and you're excited about what you're doing and you're excited about what might come in another week or another year. So that's when I started to feel like, yeah, this is this is who I am. This is my destiny.
0: Yeah. So how did your time as a TV producer come to an end?
1: It just started to change. I started to see a lot of things on TV that, it just didn't fit, I guess, my spirit or the way that, you know, just seeing these shows like and I didn't work on any of them. So I wouldn't get in trouble for saying this, but like shows like Engaged and Underage and things that were exploitive just in the world. You know, I, I thought if this is what TV is like now, what is it going to be like in the next five years? And I started to get calls for shows. I remember getting a call for a show and I was on the train up to like go and interview with the supervising producer and I was like, I could go and and have this. It was like to produce this show on America's Ugliest Bathrooms. And I was like, do I want to produce a show on America's Ugliest Bathrooms? Like, is that where destiny is calling me? Or like, could I do something else? And I remember saying, like when I had gotten to the stop, I was like, Ricky, you got to go back home. This is not, you know, this is not you. This is not what, you know, the universe is calling you to do. And I started working on shows like Trading Spaces and things that I felt really good about. But the end of my career came when the production company I was working for, they called us in a room and I was pregnant with my second child at this time, working on a show that I like loved. And I felt like I was in this really good space. And, you know, my husband and I were doing really well. We, you know, had a baby on the way and um, they called us in the room and they like had these envelopes in the room. And I was like, oh, we are about to get a bonus yes, this is great. We're about to get a bonus. And they gave us our envelopes. And I was like, oh, this is the same amount of money that I usually get in my check. Why are they giving me the same amount of money that I get in my check? And the production company was like, well, I just want you guys to know that as of like tomorrow, we have to shrink the company because the shows that you're working on are all moving to LA. And I was like, I'm sorry. I Oh, I can't go to LA. Like I'm pregnant. Like, and we, you know, you're renting this fun apartment in South Philly and we've got this whole life going on. And they were like, oh, we won't have jobs for you guys after the next two weeks. So this is your last check. And that's when a, like a ton of bricks hit me. Like up until now, everything's kind of worked out. Like when something didn't pan out, something else would come in. One door closes, another door opens. And at that point it was like, oh, no, the door is closed for good. Wow. The door is closed for good. You You have nothing now.
0: Coming up, you'll hear how Rakia was forced to take a hard look at her life and completely reset, and how, contrary to conventional wisdom, she would start a business during a recession. And soon, that business would have her sitting in the living room of Serena Williams. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Philly Who with Rakia Reynolds. So, it's the mid-2000s. Rikia Reynolds is a TV producer for MTV who is loving life, pregnant with her second child. But then one day, she gets called into a conference room at work and is unexpectedly laid off. Everything changes.
1: It was like disbelief, darkness, and the taste of disbelief and darkness on your tongue is like no other taste. And... (laughs) To me, it was tuna fish sandwiches and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches mixed with oatmeal for breakfast. (laughs) I was young. I thought I was invincible. Like nothing bad would ever happen to me. I'm a good person. Nothing bad happens to good people. So I thought I was invincible. I thought nothing bad would ever, you know, would ever happen to me. And it was so dark because I then had to go on unemployment. And I was like, man, like Unemployment? And then I decided to, you know, Rakia, you can't like let this happen to you again. Like, you know people, you, you know, you worked for Lucky Mag, you've produced for TLC and Discovery Health, and you've done things for MTV Network. Like, like get it together and figure out something. And that's when I was like, you know what? I, I don't know anything about entrepreneurship. But I know that like as a kid, I was a Girl Scout. I sold cookies. Like literally, I started to reflect. As a kid, who was I? What did I do to make it through? What did I do to make it through those dark moments of like being in isolation and in school suspension? Then it was like literally thinking back to like being a Girl Scout. I like went camping. I did survival weekend. I like sold a lot of cookies. Like, I know it sounds silly, but like I really reflected on those earlier days. And I was like, I I think I could be an entrepreneur. The word entrepreneur wasn't sexy. It it was like, Rahia, start a company. Take all of the things that you've learned in the past. And unpack those things and turn it into something that is viable and that you could use for your future. And it was just taking all of the things that I'd done. And that's how I started Sky Blue Media. And it was called Sky Blue Productions yeah. first. And I went back to Temple University and I pitched them. I said, listen, I'm starting this company. It's sort of communications, but it's a production company. I'm going to be communicating through videos and I'm not going to be sending out press releases like some of these other companies that I've studied would you like to be a client? And they gave me my first big contract.
0: Wow. Going
1: back to temples. And I, I like started the company, like we're in our 10th year now. So I started the company in 2009. Yeah.
0: And so now that's the height of the recession.
1: Man, you ain't lying. Yes, it was the height of the recession. That, listen, when I tell you it was tough times, like to start a company in the recession was unheard of. Like people were like, are you on something? Like, why would you do that? It was my only option because I think being on unemployment and like having doors closed for me, it was like I can't like mentally and physically. I can't do this again.
0: Where did the name come from?
1: When people ask me the name of the company, I, I always get giddy because my first daughter, her name is Sky, And when I was pregnant with Sky, one of my friends, this really cool guy, he was working for Nike, he was designing. He was living in Japan and we had been friends since fifth grade. And I was like, Sean, I'm pregnant. And. He's like, come and meet me in New York. We got to sit down and talk about this. And I was a young mom of 23. And I was like, I don't even know how to name a baby. Like, how do you name the baby? (laughs) So we did this whole naming session. Like, he made it like a brand because he was working for Nike at the time. So we did this whiteboarding session of like, what is the name going to be? And we came up with Sky. So that's my daughter's name. When it was time to name the company, kind of went through a similar exercise. I started to ask the executive producers and people that I'd reported to, like, what do you think about when you think about me, I'm trying to come up with a company name. And one producer, she was like, Rekia, you know, whenever you walk into a room, things are like crystal clear and the sky is very blue for me. So I just feel like you help us to really understand things when we can not understand them. And I was like, blue skies, sky blue. I like blue skies and sky blue. And then, you know, starting to unpack the color blue. Why do people like the color blue? Blue, from a psychological standpoint, is the color of trust, honesty, and sincerity. That's why a lot of banks use it. 70% of brands use blue. And I started to think, well, I like trust. I like honesty. I like being really sincere with people. If I put sky and blue together, that means I love trust, honesty, and sincerity. So if you read into sky blue, it means that you are an ambassador of truth. You are truth serum. You love to be sincere. So sky blue media came from this long walk of like being authentic,
0: really. Yeah. So you start the company, you want to be different. Mm -hmm. How do you start off being different?
1: I know this is going to sound silly, but I didn't pay attention to any external things. I didn't read any magazines at that point. I wasn't listening to any radio shows. I stopped watching the news. I turned like all of my sensors off because I didn't want to be affected by anything that was happening in the outside world. I didn't want to hear that it was a recession. I didn't want to hear that it was a bad time. I sort of went into this phase of like, out of sight, out of mind. And because I couldn't be inspired by anything or impacted by anything or affected by anything externally, I just started writing things that I wanted to see. I wasn't looking at other companies. A lot of, you know, companies now, when you start a company, you do the research, you look at what the comparative analysis is and what the landscape is. I was like, I want to be in a dark room.
0: I love that because so I'm less than a year into my podcasting company. And I've essentially stopped listening to podcasts. (laughs) And it's more of a function of I spend so much time working on them that Mm -hmm. like when I go home, I don't want to listen to them anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. But I felt that way, like where it's like, I don't want to worry about what these other people are doing because it's just going to make me doubt what I'm doing and then I'm not going to put out something great.
1: Quite honestly, the folks that, you know, are inside of the company now, we have an amazing team. And I feel like all of those folks are creative. And, you know, a lot of people will ask, you know, where does creativity come from? And if you unpack like, a lot of creative people are creative because they've encountered some sort of lack or they haven't had something and they had to create their own thing. And I think there's something so powerful in the art of lack and turning off access and turning off resources and turning off influence. I still feel like as an agency, we have to be creative every day and we cannot be influenced by what's going on now. Now, obviously we have to be on top of trends and we have right. to know what's going on. But I think there is a way to carve out the outside influence and be inspired by the psychology of human behavior and the way that people think and they act. We draw our roots more from that than, like, oh, these people are doing this. These people are right. doing this. We should do this.
0: Was there a moment where you either got a client or produced something where you thought this is it. This is here to stay.
1: There were, like, these little building blocks of, like, You know, we got to do this amazing event with the Sartorialists very early on at Sky Blue Media, maybe two or three years in. And then we started working with the city of Philadelphia on some things. And then we got a call from a very famous car ride share company that rhymes with Luber. And then I got this call from Serena Williams's manager. My memory tastes, that's how I remember things. And I remember eating lunch and there was a taste in my mouth when her manager called and said, Hey, you know, we saw you doing this thing on HSA. And you were talking about the importance of people being online a little more and Facebook. And I was talking about Facebook and Instagram and a whole bunch of social things. And they were like, you know, Serena wants to meet with you because she wants to see if you'd like to work with her brand. And I was like, Oh, well, let me check my schedule real quick and call you back to tell you my schedule. Because I I was so surprised. I'm like, is this really Serena Williams' manager calling me? So I hung up, I called my husband. I was like, hey, this man just called me and he said he was like the manager for Serena Williams and he wants to set up this meeting with me. And, And my husband was like, why are you on the phone with me? Well, call them back. And I was like, well, what if they wanna meet with me now? It's Father's Day weekend. You know, I have this thing playing with my dad and blah. Then I called my dad and my dad was like, girl, I don't care about Father's Day weekend. Like you go ahead and like live your life. So I called back. They were like, well, we want you to fly out here on Saturday. And then we're going to have you meet with Serena on Sunday. This is at her house in Florida. I was like, is this for real? Like, still, like is this for real? Is this like, is somebody else going to pick me up and take me somewhere and lock me in? The MTV peeps are back. You're on punk. Exactly. I'm like, (laughs) this is not real. So I actually had my husband come with me and pretend he was my manager. I was like, Hey, you know, I've got to bring my manager with me on this trip. And they were like, okay, all right, fine. So they picked me up on a Sunday morning, this big white car and her manager, you know, drives, you know, myself and my husband to the house and we get there and our dogs are running around and sitting in her living room. And I'm like, oh, this is my manager. And he's like, oh, you know, Serena will be in shortly. And I'm sitting on the couch and I'll never forget Venus pops up from around the corner. She's like, do you want some popcorn? And I'm like, this is real. (laughs) That is Venus Williams. She asked me if I wanted some popcorn. I was like, I don't mind if I do. Yes, I would love some popcorn. She gave me some popcorn, walked away like it was nothing. Then Serena walks in. She's like checking her mail, doing normal thing. She sits down next to me. She's like, Hey, Rakia. And I'm like, oh my God, she said my name. Like, this is for real. Like, so my husband's looking nervous. You know, he's sitting across from me. Her manager is sitting over here. She's sitting right next to me on the sofa. He asked me a bunch of questions. Why did I want to work with her? She also asked me why I use my hands when I talked. And so then I sort of geeked out and I said, I use my hands because that's how people trust you. And I like to, you know, talk with my hands. And so she kind of looked at me and she's like, "Okay," Um, (laughs) And she's like, all right, you know, this is over. I mean, uh, you know, okay, cool. I I have to go to practice right now. Do you want to come to practice with me? And I'm like, yes, I would love to come Uh to practice with you. I I sure would. And I'm like dressed in this like at the time it was like this denim wax and this long sleeve shirt. And it was hot outside. And then Venus actually asked my husband to stay behind. She's like, you look pretty strong. I need to move some pool furniture. Can you stay behind and like help me move this pool furniture? And I, I guess that was a way for her to, you know, not have my manager come yeah. with me. And I'll never forget. We got in the car. Her hitting partner drove. She was sitting in the front. I was sitting in the back seat. And she looked at me and she's like, "Rakia, now be honest with me. Is that your man or your manager? And I was like, Shit, she got me. Yes. I was like, you know what? I'm sorry. I was nervous this whole time. I didn't want to say anything, but like, that's my husband and I've run him along. And I, you know, no, he's not my manager for real, but like he helps me with business decisions. So I want him to come. She's like, oh, all right, girl. Like, please. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's the end of that. No manager for me. Right. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> and then the day went on and we went to practice and I, I actually started working with her three weeks after that. Wow. It's brilliant.
0: <laughs> the first thing I thought of when you said that I'm bringing my manager, did you guys make them get you two hotel rooms?
1: No, that's the thing.
0: It might have been the giveaway.
1: Yeah, I, well, we, the, <laughs> the thing was, yeah, we stayed in one room and we were purchasing our own tickets. So I figured I was like, they're not going to match it up. And But yeah, I didn't think it through. Yeah. I was just yeah. like, mm, <laughs> he's my manager. And they knew, they knew when we walked into the room that he was not my manager. I, we were probably like matching. At that point, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness, that's so funny, man. If you would have told Rakia on Wednesday that on Sunday you'd be going with Serena Williams to practice, and that your husband would be helping Venus Williams move pool furniture, <laughs> probably wouldn't have believed that.
1: No, I wouldn't have. And I feel like life has been like that ever since then. I still don't believe some of the people that we get to work with. We got a an email, and it said from the office of M Night Shyamalan, and I was like, what? I like forwarded it on to some other Sky Blue Media people and they were like, "Rakia, we just got an email that said from the office of M. Night Shyamalan to come meet him in his office. So there have been a series of those things, you know, getting to work with amazing, brilliant. And I'm so fortunate and honored and blessed to be able to work with some of the brightest minds and the brightest people on the earth. Sometimes when I leave the office at night, if I'm the only one, I I will look around and I'll be like, dang, Rakia!" like, do you remember where you were? Do you remember where you were? But there's a piece of me and I don't want to say this the wrong way, but there was a piece of me that always felt like you were always going to be something amazing. Like I always knew like you're going to be something amazing. I don't know what it's going to be, but you're going to be something amazing. And maybe that came from like trusting in myself or knowing that at some point in time, the dots were going to connect. I felt like You know, I said this in a staff meeting the other day, like sometimes we collect all of these dots and at the end of the day, we've got to connect them. So I was collecting them, you know, through working and doing all of these things. And I was like, at at some point they're going to connect. It still is a climb. It's a climb
0: and there are dark days. Yeah. Let's talk about the effort to unite Philly around the push for Amazon to come here. That was uh, Philly Delivers, yeah?
1: Yeah, Philly Delivers.
0: So now Amazon didn't come here whatever, you know, some people want whatever. Mm -hmm. but. I remember when it first was announced that Amazon was going to have a new HQ on the East Coast, within uh, weeks, if that, there was this incredible website and videos with some of all of Philly's players in one video, which I, I mean, I've only been in Philly since I went to Temple in 2010, but a lot of folks who had been here way longer said they've never seen that sort of united, concerted effort behind anything from Philadelphia. A lot of that was you, correct?
1: I was the creative director. So, yes. <laughs> all of that. I, I won't take full credit. I got to work with some amazing people, but the way that happened was she was like, take this idea and run with it. And, you know, that Visit Philly, you know, there's some, I would say, some exceptional bright minds of yeah. marketing here in Philadelphia. So, there was an entire team that I got to work with at Visit Philly working on this go back to my childhood, producing things, you know, in the video format. Instead of giving them all of these words, what should we give them? And it was like, we need to create these videos. And then, you know, other people will like the social campaign. And so it came down to all of these different teams bringing me on as creative director to work with the website people, to work with the forensic map specialist, to work with the social media team, to work with the copy editors. So it was such a life-changing project because it had to happen in under eight weeks, eight weeks. So imagine all of the sleepless nights from that entire core team of you know over 40 people working on it and then you know being the creative director like I'm like oh my gosh if we don't make it to the top 10 like
0: yeah.
1: you know it was my again was my sort of thinking or the strategy behind this wrong or what i had picked the wrong color or were were the videos too snarky or yeah. you know was it too this or to that and you know at the end of the day it was such a huge success in terms of how we placed and yeah. the way that it got Philadelphians to think like this is our product. Like we have an amazing product.
0: So at that point I was working at Cigna healthcare and I was working for a team that was entirely based in Oregon and they were trying to decide where to put their next office and where to build out a team outside of their Portland office. They were seriously considering Austin, Denver, and I think one other. And I was the only team member in Philly and I was screaming, Philly, Philly, Philly. And it was right when this happened. And I sent them that video.
1: Wow. And now
0: there's, they have a team of 25 here
1: going to bring that up to the core group. That's a great story. We, you know, we don't know what happened from that. I've said no. And listen, I'm going to be honest. I don't know if that was the right decision. You know, I think when I started Sky Blue Media, it was more of like, I'm starting this as a lifestyle, as an alternative to, you know, working a traditional job. You know, a lot of these new smart companies, they're like, When you start a company, you think of the exit and all of those things. And I wasn't thinking like that. So, you know, as the company started to get some visibility, I think maybe after five or six years, that's when I was approached by one big company, a very, very big agency who essentially told me they wanted me to work for their agency. And in order for me to work for their agency, they were buying up smaller agencies. Um, And and to me, the deal just didn't look right. I mean, I, I was like, it just doesn't sound right. Like you want me to work for you full time, but you want to buy my agency. But how do I talk to my clients about this? And I wasn't educated enough to really understand like what the implications were to sell or not to sell. So that was my first sort of entry into that. And then I got approached by another very, very, very large, powerful company. And they said, hey, you know, we like the work that you do with us. They were a current client. What if we absorb this? was These were the words that you, what if we, you know, absorbed your company and you sort of dissolved some of the clients that you were working with and you put more time into us? And I was like, "Hmm, you know, maybe. And they were going through some transitions and changes so that, you know, that was like, I don't know. If, I don't know if I just want to be that you know, like, I don't know if I want Sky Blue Media to be that. And then, so those were non-Philadelphia agencies and, and companies that approached me in the very beginning. And then about four years ago, Meryl Levitz, who was then the CEO of Visit Philly, I had done a lot of freelance work for them and, you know, grown very fond of Merrill and her wisdom and her being a visionary. So we would have these moments and you would have coffee and, you know, lunch and, at one point, she was like, you know, what would it take for Visit Philadelphia to buy your company? And I was like, I, I, I don't know, Meryl. I, I I didn't come to this meeting prepared to answer that question. You kind of threw me for a loop. She's like, I've been thinking about buying your company. You know, I've had my eye on Sky Blue Media for quite some time. And what would that look like? And I said, you know, I don't know what it would look like because I'm not really interested in selling my company. And she was like, that's a good answer. How, how can we work together a little more? And I was like, you know what, Meryl? I would love to work with you a little more. And and she tells this story. That's the only reason I'm telling this story because she, she tells it like this as well. So we came up with this, this plan. I said, listen, there's a trend in Silicon Valley where, you know, these entrepreneurs and residents will come in in a capacity of, you know, wearing this sort of hat of like innovation and creativity and you're innovative and you're super creative. Would you bring on an entrepreneur in residence to work with you at Visit Philadelphia. And she was like, what, what would it look like? And, you know, I went through all of these iterations of a proposal for, you know, myself and Sky Blue Media to work with her. And we settled upon this entrepreneur residency with the specific scope of work and bringing in, you know, entrepreneurs throughout Philadelphia to offer their voice in the world of marketing.
0: So I have a few questions that I ask every guest to get different perspectives. What would you say is a common misconception about you?
1: A common misconception is that I'm really young. Like, uh, you know, people, I think people think she's a young, she's a girl, she's a girl. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm a grown woman, like I'm a grown woman. So I sometimes have to come to these meetings and like really fill up my chair and yeah. sit in a certain way Body and, language. and let people know that I am a grown woman and I have years and years of expertise because at first glance, I look young. I smile a lot. You know, I'm pretty jovial in my communication. So I think that, you know, it's, oh, she's young. Yeah. We can we can talk to her this way, or she'll be okay with this. And then when I start talking, it's like, oh.
0: You see moments of surprise. It's like, oh, okay.
1: She's not. And and not saying that young people don't, you know, have these moments of authoritative voice. I just think that, and as a black woman, I will say this. You know, as a black woman, I've experienced that I've had to be a different way in a lot of rooms, like a different way. I've had to sometimes work harder, perform harder. You know, there's the black tax. There are all of these things. And when you have something like you look a little younger or you walk around with blue hair or you wear sneakers, you know, into meetings, it's like, do we respect her? Can we is she really bringing some level of gravitas to a meeting? And so I've had to, like, show and prove when I go into these spaces.
0: If you can get one message to every Philadelphian, be it a text, tweet, plane in the sky, billboard, whatever, one message that every Philadelphian could receive and ponder, what would you say?
1: I think the first thing that comes to mind is pay attention to the marginalized communities. I think that we pay attention to some of these mainstream communities. We read mainstream publications. We listen to mainstream news. We listen to mainstream podcasts. But I think some of the most creative moments and some of the answers that we need and some of the resolutions that we need come from these areas of marginalized communities that are figuring it out right now.
0: What's an example of one of those?
1: I would say there are folks in North Philadelphia. We don't talk enough about communities in North Philadelphia or Southwest Philadelphia. Sometimes they're referred to as communities in the bottom, but they're making ways for people, whether it's creating healthy food choices, whether it's creating sustainable ways to live, whether it's creating different alternative routes for education. I think that There are small pockets of marginalized communities doing things that people don't really talk about, and they have the answers. And we're trying to figure out all of these things, and we're trying to connect all of these dots, and they're doing them. And and it might be in smaller ways that are less visible, but just pay attention to some of those smaller pockets and communities that people aren't talking about.
0: If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho, and join the email newsletter at PodPhillyWho.com. Here's a very special thanks to Philly Who's patrons: Sam Schwartz, Josh Koppelman, Bob Moore, Alex Hillman, Vanessa Generelli, Ryan Fitzgerald, and Mac and Matt Glick. This episode was recorded in the Philly Who Studio, powered by CIC and was hosted and produced by me with associate production by Angela Gervasi, Lauren Hunter, and Jackson Neal, editing by Max Graham, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Till next time.